Hi, this is Dan Mendes with NextGen Venture Partners, coming off of a great conversation with Martin Babinek, uh, the founder and, and longtime CEO of Trinet, which offers uh, HR solutions to small and mid-sized businesses. Trinet is now a $3 billion company. Uh, and Martin and I talk about the history of Trinet, the lessons that he's learned. But we focus our conversation on his time since leaving Trinet in 2010. He moved back to his hometown uh, in upstate New York and has been working for the last several years on building that entrepreneurial ecosystem, connecting universities and entrepreneurs and sources of financing and the large technology companies in the region, bringing people together uh, to support the next generation uh, of great startups. And I think Martin um, has moved the needle in a very significant way in that region, has some great lessons for other entrepreneurial ecosystems and how they can expand. And I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Martin, thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be here, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. I'd like to start in 1988 when you founded Trinet. Tell us what you were thinking at the time. All right. Well, I had spent the prior 11 years working as a civilian for the U.S. Navy, and most of that time was spent outside the U.S. Wonderful experience that I would never trade for anything else. I mean, it was just fabulous. But when I did come to the U.S. with my last assignment being in the San Francisco Bay Area, as soon as I hit the ground, I tried to find a job in the corporate environment, and nobody wanted to hire me because I had spent too much time working for the government. So like a lot of entrepreneurs, I was unemployable, and that's what put me on a path to look at other opportunities. My background was in human resources management, and even though I did not understand much about business models at the time, I had figured out that working around the billable hour as a consultant was not a good way to go. And when I came across the um, existence of what was then the fledgling beginnings of what is today called the Industry of Professional Employer Organizations, or PEOs, um, the opportunity to leverage what I knew about human resources management and human resource information systems and create a service to help small and mid-sized companies uh, handle the burden of being an employer was a really attractive um, proposition for me. I mean, I believed in the macroeconomics that would drive long-term growth for that business. And I was comfortable in the delivery side of uh, being able to do some of those things. Um, but it was a, a long journey for me to learn sales and marketing. And along the way, I'd say, um, well, even though I began thinking this would be a small business, by the time I got into it uh, for a year, you know, the first 18 months, I began to figure out that in order for this kind of a business to be effective long term, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to do it as a small business because the business model is based on economies of scale. And whenever you have a economies of scale kind of business, you have to have a lot of scale in order to make it work. And, and I felt over time, um, the big guys that I'd be competing with eventually uh, would make it impractical for it to remain as a small business. So I had to convert from being a small business to a growth company. And it was not an easy transition to make because we were still very early in the development of the business, hadn't yet proven the model. Uh, we're running out of cash. Equity financing was the only way that we could keep the doors open. And uh, it's not an easy kind of business when you're creating a new model and, you, you know, it's a service business, not a technology business, as it was perceived in, in that era. Uh, we're talking like 1990. And even though we had a market presence and a following uh, with te emerging technology companies as customers, so I could get access to their venture capital relationships, uh, which in that day was you know, not an easy thing to do, 
And we got favorable responses, but all of the venture capitalists at that era would say, we don't invest in service businesses. So, you know, we love what you're doing at Trinet, but, you know, we can't invest. So it was a, it was a, it was a hard road to go. Um, well, we were raising, we raised two rounds of angel financing in the early 90s. And then uh, in uh, 1995, did a corporate deal with a, um, a large European uh, staffing company that was a great relationship and uh, taught us a lot about public market discipline. And then eventually swapped that relationship out uh, through um, a transition to General Atlantic, a very large uh, growth capital and private equity firm. Uh, and that was also a fantastic relationship. Um, and would probably also say that we had the um, issue of the um, we're trying to take the company public in the year 2000 when um, having a story of uh, high growth in the emerging tech market was an exciting story. But we, you know, we took that wave up and then rode it all the way down to the dot bomb. So as fast as we were growing in the late 90s, uh, you know, starting the uh, time we were out on the trail trying to take the company public in the fall of 2000, the, the, that bubble had uh, burst and uh, we were declining. So um, it was a very rough period in the uh, mid-2000 to uh, 2002 period as we shrunk uh, rapidly and then built the business back up uh, through um, the, from 2002, uh, kind of went back straight back up and uh, eventually took the company public in uh, March 2014, sits on the New York Stock Exchange today as a just under $3 billion market cap company. So it's been quite a journey. All entrepreneurs have to go through a, a period of personal growth in order to scale with their businesses. But you had, uh, you know, I think an additional uh, challenge with that in that you first came from government, uh, didn't have traditional business experience, and then second, originally intended to uh, build a small business. So talk about um, what you had to do personally uh, to, uh, to drive up to the, to the incredible growth that you did achieve. Well, um, there was a, a, a lot of challenge to um, kind of like raise money in that uh, situation in order for me to get both investors to have confidence and also to get team members to join at lower than market salaries and have confidence of there being an equity upside. It really required me to put the company first ahead of you know, whatever I was going to get whether it was uh, operating at a very low salary level um, or you know, doing whatever needed to be done, but putting others ahead of my interest. Because I believe that um, the business model, the team that we had, the macroeconomics that would be driving growth, I passionately believed those things were all in our favor. And if I could keep it together and keep it on the growth track, that we would, I wouldn't worry about me because I, I would be fine in the end. If the company did well, I would be fine. And remember, when, in 1995, when we did a corporate deal with the large European investor that I mentioned, that was a controlled transaction. So I've been like a minority shareholder of the company that I founded since 1995, personal risk. But I believe that even at that point, we really did have a high growth business. We were you know, not only growing at that point, but there was a lot of room in the marketplace and, and now you know, 22 years later, we're, we're still out there, still growing at a, at a healthy rate, even with a, a very large base now. So and that has proven. 
And um, with the right team, the right model, the right macroeconomic possibilities, and the right partners from a capital standpoint, you know, great things would happen. And even if I ended up not being the right guy to run the company, I would be fine. So I didn't have any trouble um, with that notion of, hey, if the company's successful, I'll be fine. It's not about me. It's about let's make sure we can return to our investors, especially those that came in early and took a huge amount of risk uh, because the model was not yet proven in those early angel rounds. And um, they were betting on me. They, they took a lot of risk, but they believed in me and, uh, and the small team that we had at that point. And they were ready to you know, continue that. Um, they've done pretty well. And the same for the team members that took those, uh, those early slots. The management team members all did really well. So um, it's, that, that's been my approach. And when I counsel entrepreneurs today that are in earlier stages of uh, their journey, the notion of putting the business ahead of uh, one's personal interest. If the business is successful, um, you'll do just fine. I mean, that is part of the coaching that I provide. And you're not just coaching these days. You're working to build uh, an entire startup ecosystem. Tell us about that. All right. Well, in the course of my journey from, um, let's say, uh, in the 1990s, late 90s, I mentioned we are trying to take the company public, I moved my family from Silicon Valley where we started trying it to my hometown in Little Falls, New York, central New York State, and uh, ended up spending um, 10 years commuting cross-country. It wasn't supposed to be that way because uh, we were trying to take the company public, and I thought I'd be transitioning to a chairman role much sooner. Um, but the you know things worked out that way, and for 10 years I spent commuting back and forth, still running and building Trinet, and thinking about the difference between my two worlds, the Mohawk Valley and Central New York State and the other world of the Silicon Valley, thinking about all these assets that we have uh, collectively that should be in an environment and an opportunity that we'd be creating, we should be creating thousands of new startups because uh, we, we have the intellectual capacity, the, you know, the financial capacity. There's a lot of attributes here that um, in some total should be powering lots of startup growth, and yet we weren't. So I spent 10 years thinking about that while I'm commuting back and forth and asking myself the question, someday, uh, if I could uh, do something here, what would it be uh, to make a difference? Because what do we as entrepreneurs do? What, what we do is we take an assessment of the current reality, and we have these dreams about what we think is possible, and, and then we're crazy enough to do something to kind of close that gap between current reality and what we think is possible in a way that most other people just don't see. That's what entrepreneurs do. So I've been on this journey since finally, after stepping down as chairman at Trinet in 2010, and I've been working full time on this vision of um, you know, how do we close this gap and really make upstate New York a mecca for startups to begin here, leveraging our tremendous intellectual capital and other assets, and to stay rooted here and create more jobs to really transform the economy of this region uh, across an entire state, not just a single community, but across a very big geography. So um, we've learned a lot. I could, I could tell lots of stories of things that have not worked and some few things that have worked, and it's been a really exciting journey. So, Let's start with some of the things that have worked. What, you know, what do you think are some of the most successful initiatives uh, that you've undertaken to transform the, the economy of the region? All right. Well, we began with uh, starting a nonprofit called Upstate Venture Connect. It's a 501c3. And um, as a nonprofit, built uh, partnerships and uh, got a lot of people engaged. 
to um, support this notion of uh, let's use the assets we have and let's cross geographic boundaries and institutional boundaries to get people working together. Uh, now in our seventh year, um, that network that we've built across the region numbers about 15,000 people that are connected to us in some fashion. We're talking entrepreneurs, capital providers, service providers, startup community supporters. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a wide net, but there's a lot of people, and they're engaged at different levels. But we got hundreds of volunteers that play some kind of role, and, and we have created some platforms, including you know, online calendaring and you know, startup ecosystem map and local networks and find various ways to keep consistent with our theme of how do we connect first-time entrepreneurs who don't necessarily have a lot of contacts and don't have a lot of relationships, they're very smart and they're really trying to do something awesome, how do we get them connected to the resources they need, especially outside of whatever community they're in? Because oftentimes we have the resources someplace in the network, and we're always looking for ways to reduce the friction involved for that entrepreneur to get connected to the right resource. So that's kind of the big problem that we solve. And we've done that through, again, building, um, let's say, micro networks within certain themes and, um, and also creating uh, a total now of six different seed capital funds that are geographically dispersed around the upstate region, collectively involving over 250 investors. And um, those um, companies that have now received funding uh, continue to grow and the number of jobs that are created as a direct result. And um, those seed capital funds that begin very small, sometimes a million, half, two million uh, in their first iteration. And then we have some now that are working on their third fund and are gradually going up the capital stack with um, the investments that they're making. Um, those funds we've been able to stitch together. So there's actually communication between the different funds and they're helping to syndicate deals and people know each other and then help each other. So depending on what a need is in one fund, whether it's finding the right board members, helping with due diligence in a technical area where nobody in that local fund has the right expertise, can we get it, you know, the right expertise out of a, another seed capital fund? There's all kinds of ways that we've been able to bring people together, help each other, that collectively now is starting to show up in the total number of companies that are receiving outside equity investment and then eventually moving up to institutional investment uh, through um, venture capital firms. So, you know, it takes a while, but we're, we're making progress. So there are a whole host of activities that you're engaged in uh, to, to build this startup ecosystem. You've been doing it now for uh, seven years um, or so. Uh, if uh, someone were listening to this in uh, you know, another part of the country but, but thinking about uh, doing something similar, you know, what are the one or two key pieces of advice that you would offer? First would be that success in really trying to change um, the kind of the direction of a local economy and go more in the high growth startup path. The single most important thing is getting seasoned entrepreneurs off the sidelines and into the game. Because if you can have an entrepreneur led startup ecosystem, that's the most important uh, foundational element to make things happen. And so in areas where there may not be a lot of visible high-tech entrepreneurs, 
you know, there, there are usually some out there, but there are always like small business people, you know, attorneys, professionals, you know, various people that want to help the community or experienced business people may not be familiar a lot with emerging growth and some of the newer industries, but they want to help. And those that are experienced entrepreneurs, no matter what their industry was, they're the ones that are most valuable in building a network around. So that's why we spend, um, I personally spend a big chunk of my time always out there recruiting more entrepreneurs and figuring out what's the right way to get that particular entrepreneur engaged. So then I interview them, give them a, you know, like a menu to pick from and kind of talk about their interests and, and then find some way to get them involved from a time standpoint and helping them see that their involvement is what will make a difference in changing the direction. And so it, it has taken us a while to build this network, but it's almost like a flywheel where eventually the momentum grows. And then as people start to see changes beginning to happen and excitement is starting to build, then later on, uh, others want to actually join and they, they, they see, hey, this, this is fun. You know, we're hanging out with interesting people. We're learning about things that uh, maybe are not well publicized in the local media. And, and in particular, people that are in the boomer generation who are often the ones with the financial capacity, um, they are not always in tune with some of the developments going on in the tech world and they, they take a lot of their news in from traditional media, be it local TV and local newspapers. And so they're, they're not really always well-informed. And so um, yeah, as, as part of what we've built, even on our nonprofit side, is a lot of communication channels so that once we get people in our network, then we're helping to inform people with developments and things that are going on in ways that the traditional communication channels are not reaching them. So that would like be a, another important lesson learned. I can imagine as you're trying to recruit uh, experienced, successful entrepreneurs to participate in all these activities, many of them might plead time. <laughs> They'd say, look, yes. I, the reason, one of the reasons I'm successful is because I'm so dedicated to building my own business. And of course, that has positive spillover effects for the local economy as well. So what do you tell them uh, that is uh, that that you know gets them you know to spend a little bit of that spare time whatever whatever it might be uh, to participate. What you know is is it a an appeal to uh, some kind of self interest? This is really interesting. Is it appeal to trying to help the local ecosystem to help the next generation of entrepreneurs? Is it a mix? What's what's been most successful? Well, first of all, in order for any startup ecosystem to work, um, I'm a believer in the Bradfeld philosophy of give first and the kind of people that are going to step up and give of their time aren't going to be ones that will look at it from a transactional basis of, oh, well, I'm going to um, get involved here because if I do this, it's going to help my business in some fashion. If that's their only motivation, it's not the right party to engage. So the kind of what we try to do when we are talking with entrepreneurs that we're trying to engage are really looking for people that are already giving of themselves to the community in some fashion. They're probably already helping nonprofits or they're involved in their community in some fashion outside their business. So we look for that and then try to get them to understand that, hey, even though this world of emerging tech may not be one that you know a lot about, here's, you know, have you thought about this or that? And oh, by the way, if you're in the boomer generation, do you want to be relevant to your kids? All right. 
this is a really interesting way to stay young, all right? It's like you could look around the corner. You get exposed to what's going on here in this newer industry that you're not reading about in your local media. You're not seeing it on your local TV. You're going to have more interesting conversations with the, the next generation. And so there are various messages. that We kind of piqued their interest and, uh, and realized that by getting involved with other like-minded people, we develop affinity, an affinity group, and it becomes a social thing as well. So we work less on the, here's how it's going to appeal to the business that you're doing. If you're committed to growing your community and you care about the next generation and you maybe want to have fun hanging out with other like-minded people, you know, what's not to like about this, all right? And now it's a matter of, let's figure out what the right path is that is appropriate for the time you've got available and what your interest is, because, you know, different people have different interests. And so if you've got a, a developed menu of choices to present and then can help them navigate through that menu, that works. Now, Brad Feld's book, Startup Communities, does a good job of explaining. Here, here's a list of menu items. So, you know, we always recommend that to people that are trying to go down that path of, of building startup community. It's a, it's a great resource. And then it's personal engagement. So, you know, these things are you know, oftentimes um, going to be about, you know, how do we start new relationships? It's, new relationships, even in this digital age that we live today, um, new relationships of significance are most typically going to still come to us through one of two traditional mechanisms. We're either going to get referred by a trusted source or we're going to have what we like to call a creative collision where we happen to bump into the right person in the right place at the right time. And so you might say as a mission for Upstate Venture Connect and our nonprofit and all the things we do, we try to increase the volume and quality of both referral by trusted sources and creative collisions. Because, you know, when we're out there and uh, we bump into the right people at the right event and then have this message that we can appeal to them, then it's follow-up and, and actual engagement. And then spreading that in a network effect across a very broad geography, that's what we do. Well, there are a number of levers that you can pull to build startup community, and that's uh, it could be events, it could be capital sources, it could be bringing in you know, larger institutions like universities and established corporations, and it could also be trying to influence public policy. And you made a run for Congress uh, to try to do that. So I'd love to hear about that, uh, that experience. Well, I'll just say briefly, I mean, um, I did run as an independent candidate in 2016, uh, and um, I have been an independent voter my entire life, uh, so this is not uncharacteristic, and this is also a very entrepreneurial thing to do, to create a, a new party line. So, and by the way, that uh, mission still continues. So while I was not successful in my effort to be elected uh, as the congressional representative in the 22nd District, I learned a ton, and I and I wouldn't hesitate to say that it was a worthwhile experience. Uh, and I made a lot of new friends. Uh, and I spread the message of uh, how do we create jobs in this kind of former industrial area that has a lot of intellectual capacity from, you know, we have 115 colleges, half a million college students, $3 billion a year in corporate and academic research, a lot of uh, engineering talent that's here. It's like, I could go on and on. We have all these assets 
that should be collectively creating a lot more startup companies than we are. And running for Congress gave me a reason to spread that message and get a lot more people engaged. And oh, by the way, a bunch of those people I met along that path are now part of you know, these other initiatives that I have going on. So um, it's, uh, it, it's just another aspect and our effort continues with the Upstate Jobs Party, uh, which uh, we've got some candidates running this year in 2017 and stay tuned, there will be some more developments in that next year. But I always encourage entrepreneurs who really care about making a difference to, to not rule out the opportunities in uh, public policy to further their goals. Martin, thanks so much for spending time with me today. All right. I look forward to more contact. Appreciate questions too, Dan. Well thought out.